Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Well, welcome everyone to the Aging Fearlessly program. I am flitting around Queensland at the moment from Caravan Park to Caravan Park, meeting truly inspiring men and women. Some of them are willing to speak to me. Uh, Earlier this year, I was introduced to Peter Beavis uh, and I only actually got to speak to him on the phone. He's a character from Kingaroy, but we couldn't figure out how to actually record Peter's story. So... This week, by default, I found myself in Kingaroy, and this is my big opportunity to spend time with Peter. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Peter, I want you just to share early days of your life, and you can talk as much as you want, because you grew up in far western Queensland? Yep, yep. On the border, almost? Yep, right on the border. What some of us would probably know as the rabbit-proof fence, but it's the dingo-proof, the dog-proof fence. Dog fence, yeah. The dog fence. Yeah. Peter, just share a bit about the beginning of your life. I was born in Titborough. Then we went to Bindara Gate, which was one of the stations on the, the border fence, about 1940. 48, 49, we moved to Hungerford, which is about two, 250 odd K from Burke. Wow, long way. Yeah, between Burke and Thargaminda. Then mm-hmm. we uh, we were there for, till 1958, I think we left, or 57 we left Hungerford. Yep. And uh, my dad, he was a boundary rider on the fence, so we used to have... 30 miles to the east, and I I think it was 30 miles to the west. And he had to look after that section of fence. And uh, that, like, school didn't exist. There was something they called correspondence, but I really don't know who done mine. Uh, I do know a bit about the correspondence school. Yeah. So it was run by the the government. Education department. The education department, yep. And they used to send out lessons in paper form yep. for, for yeah, people yeah. to read. and Yeah, and yeah. it must be so much different these days because of the internet. But yeah, so school didn't really exist other than correspondence school. Well, I, I can't really remember doing anything with correspondence <laughs> um, because there was one, two, three, four older than me and I think June, probably five, that was supposed to be learning schooling, but I can remember spending most of my days either out with Dad or around town. None of it involved schooling. <laughs> what? So your Dad was a boundary rider. What does a boundary rider do? He checks the fence, the border fence, or he was a... 
we used to call it a boundary road, but he's actually a patrolman on the fence. So you've got to fix the fence. If a pig goes through, you've got to fix it. Uh, in the channels at Hungerford, if it washed out, they might send somebody from Wampa or one of those places up to help you. There might be three or four mile of fencing down. It, it'd be all stood up again. And who does a boundary rider work for? At that time, it was the New South Wales government. Uh, up until 58, I think. Then uh, their policy said that anyone who was boundary rider had to have a four-wheel drive, what I understand. And there was dad and eight kids at Hungerford. Yes, and it's a lot of kids. How does someone with a family of eight afford to buy a new four-wheel drive to do the fence? So he just said, you know, I don't need it on my section. My section's all Red Ridges, River and Mulga country. He said, I don't need a four-wheel drive. I'm not in the Sandhills like the other guys further down. Why should I need it? And they said, well, you know, either get it or go. So he went. And... It had all changed from one department to another department, my understanding was. I wasn't old enough to really understand what was happening, but my grandparents had the Nakundra Hotel, which is about 120 kilometres west of Thargaminda. So we stopped there for 12 months. Uh, Dad was still working on the fence or finalising things down there. Then we moved into Thargaminda, which had a school. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How old would you have been? Uh, 11. 11. Yeah. But you'd not been to school before that? No. 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 So there was no reading, writing and arithmetic prior to that? My sums were all right because I, could, I used to be allowed to add up a quid, two quid, ten bob. <laughs> <laughs> that was no worries. I had no trouble there. When it came to money, you were good. <laughs> yeah, but English... I'm still no good with English because I never had a grounding from English. But when I went to school, I was, the, mass, the, the school teacher said, you should be in grade one. But he said, how, how can I put an 11-year-old kid in grade one? <laughs> so he put me alongside of a, a girl who was quite switched on and uh, anything... Instead of asking him what was happening, I could ask Donna next door, you know. And she sort of helped me for the first 12 months, which, which was good, you know. Made you feel comfortable? And Well, I used to get teased a fair bit because I'm blind in one eye and it's a bit crossed. Yeah. And uh, that was... That was Grounds for teasing. Grounds for bullying, <laughs> eh? Yeah, it was. But a lot of them didn't know that I was a bit of a bluer. And, you know, I could thump kids three or four years older than me <laughs> because I didn't care, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I've had good mates, you know, and, and good mates stand by, yeah? A few of them, you know, but I got into a fair bit of trouble with, it, with the teacher for thumping other kids. Uh, <laughs> the poor teacher having to discipline you. Six cuts, you know, but it didn't worry me, eh? It, 
he used to say to me, you know, I don't understand why. I said, well, you maybe you should listen to what they call me because the rumour went around Thargo that we're half Chinese. <laughs> yes. So you can imagine what, what they're really saying, you know. Yes. But, oh, well, he said, but I've still got lifelong friends from back there, you know. Oh, I never thumped. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you had one brother, Keith. He was he, an asthmatic. He died, yeah, yeah, Keith yeah. died when he was very young. Yeah, 18 months, yeah. And that must be hard um, when you're so far from medical help, when, when you have... Well, the nearest medical help really is the flying doctor from Broken Hill at that stage, which by plane then would have been three or four hours. Wow, you know? that's a long... Yeah. yeah. Well, it's quicker to get the flying doctor than take you to hospital somewhere. Uh, but that's if you lived there, that's what you expected. So you also grew up or cared for by Auntie Nola. Auntie Nola, yeah. Tell us about Auntie Nola and where she fitted into your life. Mum's sister. She would have been one, two, two or three below mum. Mm -hmm. And uh, like when Keith got crook, I was, from what I can make out, I was given to Nola. Nola read me for about 18 months and uh, like when she got married I run down the aisle chasing her saying mummy 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 <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's in that yeah thing. it is it's in oh, written yeah. in here but you know it, it, uh, it even up until oh, I suppose 15 or 16 I always thought Nola was my mother and she'd given me away it's, it's strange eh? yeah but, that's the way it was. <laughs> and is Nola still alive? Yeah, she lives in Toowoomba. Oh, okay. So she's come in closer uh, than way out west where yeah, you yeah, were. Yeah. Yes, 800k to the east. So we were just talking outside and you were talking about the camps. Can you tell us about the camps where you worked? When I was at Nakandra. Nokatunga was a big place, and they used to have two camps, uh, indig indigenous camp and a white camp. You can say what you like, <laughs> as you, this is your story. <laughs> and uh, I always wanted to go into the camp because, you know, you used to see these ringers come down and thought, oh, I wouldn't mind doing that, eh? And what's a ringer? Uh, a station hands. A station hand, The yep. ones who muster and that, you know. Yep. So it was debated for a while and the manager come down one day and said, oh, to Granny, if Pete wants to go into the camp, he can go with uh, Herbert. But all the ringers come down and said, don't go with Herbert, go with Peter Hood in the, in the, in the indigenous camp, eh? I yep. thought, mm, they know. Anyway, I goes in the camp and uh, I was off-siding for the horse tailor. And the horse tailor being? He looked, he looked after the horses. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he looked after the horses and then he used to have to go mustering or help the cook or, you know. Yeah. And, uh, like, he'd kick you out of bed at three o'clock in the morning to go get the horses. But he'd always tell you where the horses were. And how did he know where the horses were? Well, to this day I don't know. But he used to know where the horses were. He'd, 
if the horses were further away than normal, they'd, they'd wake up 10 minutes earlier to go and get the horses so you could get there. And you had to walk out to get the horses? Sometimes you'd have a night horse, yeah. Depends what the conditions were or where you were. Uh, sometimes you'd just... I used to ride out bareback on a, on a horse and bring the others in. Uh, the mustering used to start breakfast to be on at daylight, then the stockmen would be going out by sunrise into the to muster. And I just want to come back a, a bit to the horses that you were going out to get. The horses were let loose at night after the day's work. Normally two hobbled, yeah. They were hobbled, yeah. Probably two or three hobbled, yeah. Okay, and so they were then hobbled. It slows them down a little bit. A fair bit, yeah, yeah. And then then they go off feeding at night. Yeah, well, the, the other horses, it stick with the hobble ones. There's always a pack of horses that oh. say you've got a leader. So most of the other horses stop with the leader. Oh, the I leaders. see. So yeah. not every horse was hobbled, just no, a few of them. Just a few of them, yeah. Normally then, yeah, yeah. And so how many horses would you be going out to get and Probably how would you bring them back? 15 or 20. You just, you just drive them back in with the horse. And would just be you doing that? Uh, sometimes the horse tailor. Depends how I went the night before. If I stuffed up, he'd send the horse tailor with me until I learnt what I was doing. And what was what could you stuff up? Lose a horse. You could lose a horse? Oh, you, yeah. You might lose two horses. First time you go out, you... You can't watch where you go and count horses. Yeah. So you'd get back in and everyone would be there and they'd say, hey, Peter, he's lost me bloody horse. <laughs> and were you a good rider? Where did you learn to ride? At the camp. I couldn't ride a horse. I still can't ride a bloody horse, but these horses, like the old horse I used to ride, I could shimmy up his leg. Yeah. Grab me by the mane and pull myself on and ride out, no worries whatsoever. So did you have saddles? Oh, the other guys did, yeah. The if other... you went mustering, you had a saddle. Yes. Yeah. And during the evenings, when the muster was over, the horses, all the gear was taken off them and left at the camp? Yeah, they'd feed the horses, mm -hmm. uh, take them to water, yeah. then turn them loose. Yeah, that was the, that was the way it was, you know. Uh, not uh, out of the out of the camp. There might have been if there was fifteen ringers. There's normally thirty horses or twenty five horses. Eh? There's always spare horses because you can't ride the same horse and flog it every day. Ah, so yeah. the spare horses. So I, I'm trying to understand what a camp's like. So is the camp the same place for moves? It moves every day. It moves. Oh, might three or four days. Depends if you're main yard. If you're on the main yard, you muster into the yard. But if you're mustering away from the yard and bringing them in, you might you might spend three days here, four days there, and a week at the yards where just, they're trucking. Just for the listeners, what year are we talking about in Australia? What? Uh, 58. 1958. Yeah. So when you're out on these camps... What's your sleeping arrangements? Swag. Just a swag? Yeah. Which they carry with them when you, you move carry camps. your own swag. You carry your own swag. Yeah. So there's no one to help you. And <laughs> I'm joking. Well, I was only a kid. Tuck eh? you in. They yeah. go on a, a bun cart or, you know, 
uh, a, a trailer behind a tractor. All your gear goes on that. Uh, how old were you then, 1958? What year were you born? 47. 47. Yeah. So you were... 10 or 11. 10 or 11 years yeah. of age. And yeah. you were out there, no parents. Your My parents were at Nakundra. Yeah, they were at Nakundra. But when you're out on the on the camps... Oh, well, you had Peter Hood and... Yeah, those... so they were looking after you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... Yeah, yeah. It must have, like a father. It, like a, was it a wonderful feeling? To be trusted, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course So it was it about trust. It's all trust. You, you know, if, if you're out in that country and you're with someone you don't trust, you don't survive. Yeah. You know, you, you, uh, Peter Hood and them used to look after you like a uh, second son. That, you know, that, that, that was their job. Especially if you're only a young fellow and they invited you into a camp, yeah. Yeah, you don't understand what, how they were. Did you ever find times out there scary? Was there any moments where you things happened that you that really worried you? Min min lights. Min min lights. Mm. What are min min lights? Oh, they're lights that appear mainly like aliens. <laughs> min min light. There are min min lights east of the Wilson on Nokatunga in the sand hills, where these lights appear and just go like that and disappear. What were they? Min-min lights. And what is a min-min? Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, up around birds, uh, bullia, there's a lot up there too. They say it's phosphorus in the ground. Oh. I, I don't know. I can't explain it to you because I don't know. But uh, like dingoes howling and that, it, it never worries you, are you? It's sort of... It, it's just something that happens. It doesn't worry you. But uh, no, I never got scared because I always knew that there's 15 or 20 other blokes in the camp. You know, and the, most of them, no one had ever run you down. It, it, you know that you were part of the you were part of the team, and everyone wanted to show you the best way to do things. And were there other young boys like yourself that were invited along? Well, there's none there, eh? There wasn't any there. No, no. The youngest would have been 17, 16, 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of those were seasoned ringers by that time. Yeah. yeah what time, what, what age would they sort of become a ringer? 14. They'd wow. start, yeah. Either a cowboy at the station and they'd move into the camp. A cowboy used to milk the cows and get the eggs and kill the... arrange things at the station, help the cook. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's... My job was much the same as a cowboy in the camp. But you were, you were, yeah, you were out in the camp. <coughs> I was in the camp, yeah. Instead of back mm. at the station. So if you were, if you were a young man at the station, how did they choose you to become a ringer? Because my grandparents had the pub at Nakundra, which is on Nokatunga, and all the ringers used to come there. Uh, on the weekends and Christmas and that, and you get to know them, you see them coming in, you think to yourself, you know, I said to Granny once, can I go in the camp? No, you're too young. I thought, oh, no use talking to her. I work on Billy Hughes. So he, he was the manager, so he used to go and say to Bill, can I go in the camp? You're too young, Pete. Hop in the thing and we go checking waters or something, you know. And he give in in the end, eh? he said, yeah, but you've got to go, you know. You choose who you want to go with and that's it. But 
And where was your father? This, you know, you were in the camps. He was he was still settling things in Hungerford, where he used to work on the fence. Uh, yeah. I, other than that, I don't really know. Uh, but up until then, about November, October, I think it was when the camp shut, and uh, we went from. I went out of the camp because. I don't think I, I can remember a quid a week was me pay. <laughs> that was probably a lot of money. It was a lot of money, yeah. But I, I, I was actually wasn't employed. I was just a. And they were just helping you out and yeah. kindly throwing yeah. you a quid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, then we moved to Thargaminda in '58. So uh, Dad got a job on the council for a couple of years, and he went back in the mustering camps mm. because. Dad grew up on Kidman stations from when he was about 20-odd. Yeah, so tell us a bit about Kidman, Sid Kidman. I've been doing a bit of reading, and he was one of the biggest landholders in Australia. He was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. ever meet him? No, he died in 35. Oh, he died in 35, okay. So tell me about... No, you didn't meet him then. No. <laughs> Unless it was as a vision. Um, so tell me about the stations... Well, well, see, the, most, the of the, most of and... the families, I had one uncle, Uncle Eric, he started with Kidman when he was 12, and that's the only job he ever had. Mm-hmm. He managed, oh, gee, Nerioko, Inaminka, oh, heaps of places, eh? And these are big stations that he managed. Mm, mm. Yeah, big, big places, eh? Uh, then... The other uncle, he managed Dury, uh, Durham Downs, uh, all those places. All the family sort of, it was, Dad had retired and the son had go managing somewhere. Most of, the, most of their boys went as, as overseas or in the stock camps on these places. And uh, I, I went to Thargaminda and... I never went back to the the stations, eh? Because once you've been in Thargaminder, ice cream and lollies and shops. Well, I was going to say, what did what were you introduced to in Thargaminder? Ice creams and lollies and picture shows, but <laughs> and picture shows. But I'd had a, I had a bit of a burst. I went to Brisbane when they they tried to fix me left eye up. Yes, well, you were born with a yeah, a yeah. gammy a gammy eye, whatever. Yeah, well, I got peripheral vision, but no straight ahead vision. They took me down there and they operated, and like you imagine what a kid's like in you're going to Brisbane, eh? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> How'd they build that? So, how did you get from Thargaminda? How old were you this at this point in time? Fifty-six. Oh, so this was round when you were nine, before yeah. you went must to mustering. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. So you went to Brizzy. Yeah, we flew. It was flood time, so it would have been 56. Big 56 floods. They flew us in the flying doctor. I was doctor born from... in 56. Oh, yeah? It's a good year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> went from Hungerford to uh, Tullamulla, flying doctor. They flew us in on the plane. Then. So who was with you? Uh, two sisters, Kay and Beth. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we went to what they call the 
Jesus, what they call that? Leslie Wilson home at Redcliffe. And it was a it accommodation for people coming down for the hospital. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep. And uh, he was a, I think he was a governor at one stage of Queensland. And he must have donated money or something, eh? Because there would be twenty or thirty boys and twenty or thirty girls in two dormitories. It might have even been more. I, it, I got the vision, but I can't sort of how yeah. many were there. <coughs> and uh, like they had cooks and thing, but they had a policy that you couldn't you couldn't because it was right on the beach. Yeah. But you couldn't go you couldn't go out the back gate and, and walk on the beach. In case you went in a drought. Yeah. <laughs> You'd never seen <laughs> never seen a the beach ocean. before. Never been on an aeroplane, never been on the beach, During, never been on a that train. Must, that must have been huge for you. <laughs> it was. It was. Yeah, it was different. Eh? And I stood at the back fence and I looked out and thought to myself, holy hell, that's a big river, eh? <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. People laugh when you tell them that, but you know, if you're a kid from the bush, you don't know any different, eh? I do see there's some places where I live in Sydney that they bring children in from the bush. Same. Places like Stewart House and the far west yeah. in Manly, and yeah. they bring them in for, well, for a break in some cases from... Mainly it's for medical. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes with the Stewart House, it's for a break from you, where you, they're living. You look Leslie Wilson home up, you'll find the same ah, thing. Yeah. And I know far west, a lot of it's for yeah. medical help. Yeah. See, when you get down there, when you get when you get to them places, they ask you when you get there, what religion are you? Did you have a religion? Well, I, I didn't know, eh? But I had a mate. His name was Robbie Sharp. And he was the first bloke I made it up with, when I, you know, within the first few days in the home. And he said, hey, Pete. And I said, yeah, mate. He said, are you a Catholic? <laughs> I said, why would I want to be Catholic? And he said, well, the Catholic Church goes past the ice cream parlour <laughs> and you get threepence to put in the plate at, at the... At the church? And you get threepence to get an ice cream on the way back. I said, really? So I went and said to the sisters, hey, there's a bit of a lurk going here, eh? <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're a Catholic, you get an ice cream on a Sunday if you're Church of England which is the other mob, you just go to the church with threepence, put it in the plate and come home. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what did she say to you? Anyway, we were Catholics for about six months. <laughs> While you were down there? No, no, I no, was there about two years, three, two and a half, no. 18 months I was there. Oh, so this is for the surgery on your yeah. eye. You were in Brisbane for 18 months. Uh, 18 months, yeah. So why so long? I, I, I couldn't really tell you. Uh, I can remember waking up in hospital and uh, I couldn't see. They used to put a patch over me, good eye to try and strengthen this one. Yeah. And uh, I was always sort of... Uh, I couldn't go anywhere because... You couldn't see anything. I couldn't see anything. Uh, I couldn't go to school because I couldn't see anything. And uh, I learnt in the end that you, you put a little... Undo it a little bit here on the on the nose, and you could see out where you were going. Because yep. 
I had band-aids all across my forehead and that where I run into brick walls and oh you know it, that they didn't understand so but that's the way it was you never got the sight in that eye back no, did you no you, no 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 blind no, as no. a bat in one eye I, only straight ahead only straight ahead <laughs> well you know if you're walking sideways that might, might help but well, you couldn't <laughs> a bit like a eye. crab <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a publican in Hungerford he came down and he visited us in, in the in the hostel. Yeah. He, he told the matron that we were Church of England. So the bug of the ice cream job. Oh, up, eh? how sad. Oh yeah, we thought it was bad too. Do you have any particular stories um that you remember from things that happened in the mustering days? Or life out on the dingo fence? There, there is things uh, on the fence. Was I, I haven't got real good memory on the fence. I can remember going out and lighting the boiling the billy and that, but other than that, not much. It, it, it sort of I was a bit. The mustering camp stuck with me. How how to find water and, and what's the animals um, where north and south is by the trees. Uh, stuff like that, like the main water. If you follow main water out, it's like a tree trunk. Yeah. You know the trunk and the, all the branches go out. Well, if you follow all the branches in, there's water. Ah. Oh. Uh, most of the rivers in the Channel Country run north to south, but don't ever rely on that because it might be different. Um, like the north side of the tree uh, grows more than the south side because it faces the sun. Yeah. Yep. Then any moss grows on the, the south, south side, side, not on the north side. You, could be, you should be a tracker. <laughs> no, but this is what the, the yeah. dark people tell you. Yes. You know, these are the things that they tell you. Uh, like most birds, birds when they're watering. Birds are opportunity. If they're flying past water, they'll water. So they don't have to go in. But the likes of kangaroos and all those animals all water just before, say, four o'clock, three or four o'clock. Yeah. So if you see cattle walking in, you know, and they're going into water. So you know there's water down there. Um, a lot of the, lot of the old kangaroos drink out of soaks. With what, a, what's a soak, a soak? A soak in a creek. So they'll dig a hole until the water comes up. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, that's, but, that's nature. You've got you to gotta go with nature. You can't go against it. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, they're all things that most of us never really think about or do. Well, that's, that's why they sent me in with Peter Hood. Because Peter was a great teacher. He was Aboriginal. Yeah. So what other things did he teach you that you can remember? Oh, golly. Manners. Manners. I love that. What sort of manners? Uh, well, manners, respect. You know, if you respect somebody, they respect you. If you don't respect them, you haven't got much of a hope. You know. In the camp, how did people get on? 
used to be a few nibbles now and again, but not very many. You know, uh, the cook. In, when you're in the camp itself, the cook's normally the boss. Ah. Everyone's nice to the cook because they want to be fed. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Uh, any disputes is normally settled by the by the head stockman until they get to a pub and have a few beers and have a fight. Uh, but 90% of the guys I was ever with, no, no, there's... You could have a hundred ringers in at the pub at Nakunda and only have one fight. Every, and, yeah, go on. Everyone sort of respected the other one, you know. There was no... Jealousy is the most things and there wasn't much jealousy, so there wasn't too many fights. Was there alcohol in the camps at night? Nope. They were alcohol-free zone? Yeah, oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No guns. No guns, no alcohol. A lot, a lot did have guns when the, the dogs were bad, but uh, it was very well controlled, you know. Uh, no alcohol, that's, yeah, that's... Was the big rule. Yeah, yeah. So when they went to town, they let their hair down. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about their wives and families of these ringers? They didn't have wives and families? No, nah, no, nah, no. Nah, nah. Was it... That once you found a wife or, a, you know... Well, you found... either become a, a fencing contractor or a windmill expert around, you know, where you go back to the station every night. When you got older, that's what the normally thing was, yeah. Like, there used to be... Mm, in the general area of Nakunda, there'd have been six or eight guys who were fencing contractors. And that, that they were ex-ringers, but they all went in the, you know, uh, the likes of a lot of blokes become stationed at the station itself who run the waters or windmill experts who fix the mm. windmills. They're all gone now. All the mills are just about buggered, eh? Mm. Uh, but they were the jobs, like Nokatunga would have 50 men employed. Now there's probably five or six, you know. The stations, so how far from the stations would you be during the week when you're out mustering? Furthest on Nokatunga was about 60 miles, 160 miles, 100k, yeah. And you'd ride out to those? No, a lot of the times someone would take the horses out and they'd take you out in a... In a um, the back of a ute? On the plant, which would be a Ferguson tractor and a trailer. Uh, or Billy the Boss would take you out in a Land Rover. Depends. Mm-hmm. But most most of them, they'd start here and, and, and work. They just wouldn't go 100 kilometres out and start. They'd start probably 20k from the station and work around. Yeah. And the temperature at the time, when you worked out there, what sort of temperatures, what were the, what were the days and the nights like? Summer. Oh, it'd be 45, easy enough. Uh, nights would sometimes drop down to 30 degrees. Uh, but it's a dry heat. Uh, if you get 40, 45 down here, it'd nearly kill you. Humidity. Uh, but 
It was something you grew up with and you didn't know any different. You'd go to Brisbane, eh, in, in November or before Christmas, you'd put a coat on there because you are cold. <laughs> I can't imagine what the heat would have been like out there. But if you grew up with it, you don't know no different. Yeah. yeah. After being a teenager, you know, where did you go? Where did you go from there? Where did life take you? Well, I went into the post office as a junior postal officer, what they used to call a JPO. And when I become seventeen, you couldn't be a JPO anymore. Uh, I'd sat a couple of exams to go postal officer because I had no education. I couldn't... That was the dead end in the post office then. If you didn't have a junior certificate, you didn't have a job. You could go as a postman. That was the only opportunity. They told me that if I'd done further studies, uh, I could take up the position I passed. I passed the postal officer's exam, but I couldn't accept the job. Mm. You know? I said, buggy, I'll go truck driving. And that's that was the rest of my life pretty well. You must have in your your life seen a lot of really bad droughts. Is there any in particular that stand out? Probably 57, 58. After the floods came after the drought? The, after the, yeah. And uh, it... it Mid-60s was bad. I carted livestock dying stock, eh, and it's... To look back on it really makes me cry now. These poor cows, eh, and you think, you know, why didn't, why didn't they move them weeks before? And the reason they didn't we- move them weeks before, there's nowhere to move them to. Yeah. It was all, it was all drought, eh? Yeah. And, uh, but to see uh, truckloads of cattle, uh, dropping there might have been 20 or 30 trucks loaded with cattle and they'd lose one truck you know between the lot they'd lose a, a truck a load. truck load of cattle yeah, yeah, yeah. oh life can be really cruel in the australian outback can't it can sure can yeah and i guess too for some people they look at it you know as a really joyful place to be a place of freedom it is, yeah, 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 but it's, it's, it's got its, it's got its good and it's got its bad, eh? You know, and that's the way it is. It, it, uh, it, it's like you get a wet season and you can be flooded in for six weeks, uh, like the floods just don't stop, eh? You get a wet year and you might have uh, three months of floods. And the next year you get one flood, that's Christmas time. You only get a flood at Christmas time, eh? And, uh, but it, it just, I can remember back times where the, the, they missed out on good floods. They got small floods, but the floods stop inside the channels don't do any good. You've got to get a, a flood that floods right out on the plains to grow the feed. Yeah. So any channel floods are... All they do is fill up the water holes. Mm. And you spend a lot of your life trucking. Tell us a bit about your trucking career. I I started with a bloke when we moved to Thargaminda. And 
because my dad had, had left home and gone to the mustering camps, had only come in every, say, six weeks for a weekend, I adopted a bloke up town who was a truck driver. And he, they were very kind to me, you know, him and his wife. And I was more or less uh, regarded as a part of the family. And uh, until I drove for him for six years, done mail runs, and uh, done a lot of livestock for him. But he was, he was a wonderful bloke, eh, you know. And uh, that was the base. Like, we used to do fuel, cattle, uh, and mail runs. I used to like mail runs because you used to meet people. If you were, mm. if you were popular on a mail run, you could have a cup of tea at every station. Yeah. And <laughs> when you got to the end, you get you know, they'd always give you a meal. So if you... Same thing. If you're good to them, they'll be good to you. Mm. So... So I done mail runs on and off for six years, and uh, before that, when I was say thirteen, until I got my license, I used to go with him on the trucks. So he taught me how to drive when I was probably thirteen. I could handle semi trailers and road trains when I was fourteen or fifteen. Country life, yes. Yeah, but you know that's that's what he taught you. That's yeah, that was the way. It, like he taught you to tie a load of wool on. How to load everything, eh? You know, it, it, but that was the way it was. I didn't know any different, eh? Like he only used, I used to, he used to shout me a meal now and again. That's all pay I got. The rest was experience, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Like when I worked for him on the trucks, he, I probably got when I started, I was twenty quid a week, plus tucker. You know, that was life, eh? And you enjoyed it? Oh, I wouldn't have been there otherwise, would I? Yeah. Yeah, of course I did. I I love hearing people's stories like this because, you know, to a lot of us, it's like a foreign language. You know, we don't understand that life in the outback that you grew up with in the camp. So from what you're telling me, I have a picture of Mm. what What daily life might have been like and coming back and sleeping in a swag and Peter telling you where the horses would be. I'm still beyond me and beyond you how he knew where the horses would yeah, be. But the same when you went mustering. You might, there might be two or three teams go out mustering, right? Out of the one camp. But he'd always take the young fellas. And he'd be riding along, he said, we'd better come over here, old mate, eh? What's over there, Huda? Or be a couple of bloody, a couple of cattle hanging on that bloody side of that sand he'll eat. No, he'd say, you go over the sand. He'd be half a dozen there, the cattle, eh? Yeah. How, how did he know? How does he know? Instinct? Ah. Uh, Experience? Know. I don't know. You don't know? Don't know. It was just, it's built into him. He'd done it since he was a kid, you know. At night, just before we go, because we're going to finish up in a minute, when at nights around the camp, obviously the cook was the boss, what what did you do at night? Did they sit and tell stories? Did A few did. A few wrote poems. A few done charcoal drawings. 
You heard of, ever heard of Max Mannix? Yes. Well, Max, I was in the camp with Max, and he's, his paintings sell for bloody... A fortune. A fortune, yeah. And he was just a ringer, eh? Yeah. And he just did them around the camp on... What was he using? Oh, probably a bit of paper and bloody bit of chalk, you know. Uh, but I still talk to Max on, on Facebook. He's, he's no different to what he was, although he might be worth bloody million dollars, but he's, he's still only worth $2 to me, you know. It, yeah. it's, he's just a mate. He's just a mate, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but, you know, it's it just... That, that's what they've done. And I bet some of the stories that were told around the campfires... Well, me being a young fellow, I probably wasn't allowed to listen to them. Ah, I bet you they were wild stories. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I would like to be a fly on a wall. And there's no walls. <laughs> oh, but be most great. of that was at the pub when they, you know, like... On the weekends. I, oh, no, 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 no. You might get in once every three months. Oh, you, you, you were out for months on end. Oh, shit, yeah. You, you weren't allowed in the station. Oh, <laughs> Come on. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm sort of thinking nine to five, Monday to Friday. No, oh, right, sort of the a daylight bit, till dark. Delus- delusional there. Most of it was daylight to dark seven days a week. Daylight to dark seven days a week yeah. for months at a time. Oh, you might have Monday off or Tuesday off, but there's never a Sunday or a Saturday. Cleaning? Did you, oh, you jump in have, the rivers? Yeah, go and have a fish or a swim or... Yeah, yeah. other than that, no. Well, Peter, thank you so much for sharing um, some of your story. I'm sure there's so much more to Peter. No worries. This is Karen from Ageing Fearlessly and I'm with Peter Beavis and uh, just finding out a lot about the history of life in the camps and a life well lived. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Ageing Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in your eye. It's not all nine to five. It's a wonderful life. Let's go and climb mountains Oceans wide Live out our dreams Just you and me Let your heart be alive There's no time to waste Gotta go get the most out of time Don't be afraid Like this treasure that you've got to find